0: Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Joey Chait is a former member of the Church of Scientology and was raised in the group since birth. He was forced into Scientology training courses at a very young age and worked in the family business with his Scientology family for most of his life. While a high-ranking member of Scientology, Joey says that he experienced and witnessed many instances of physical, sexual, and mental abuse. In 2016, Joey decided to publicly speak out against Scientology, including his story of being gay and growing up in a homophobic group. Joey continues to speak publicly about the abusive practices he experienced and also saw in Scientology and is currently writing an autobiography about his experiences. Joey is happily engaged to his longtime partner in Los Angeles and continues to work with ex-Scientologists and anyone wishing to leave a group like it, especially those who are part of the LGBTQ community. Here's Joey now for part one of my conversation with him. So I am very happy today to welcome Joey Tay to the show, and he has such an interesting multi-layered story. It was fascinating and heartbreaking to hear your story originally, and I think that it's a very powerful story because it's a story, I think, of kind of going through the fire uh, and then triumph. To,
1: To put it mildly. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that's to put it mildly, I can, oh yes. wow, okay, right. So Joey, do you want to uh, just introduce yourself, let people know what you're doing today, a little bit about you, and then we'll start, we'll go into your history.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, so my name is Joey Chate. I uh, was born and raised in the Church of Scientology, and I officially left the church in 2016, which led into a whole, uh, uh, an entire life. Changing event, uh, with all the things that go with leaving Scientology. You know, your family doesn't talk to you anymore. You lose a bunch of your friends and all that things. So now I am essentially starting my life on my own. Uh, you know, over the last couple of years, and I've been, I've been, I've been doing it without the support of my family.
0: Mm, okay. That's mm-hmm. that's very hard to do, especially if if your family was a big part of your life.
1: They were. I mean, I worked in the family business for pretty much my entire life, and growing up in Scientology most people are are very sequestered in that bubble of protection. As long as you behave and as long as you're a good little Scientologist, you know, you're protected. You know, you, my parents always supported me and they always gave me a job and they always let me go and do whatever I needed to do. And then all of a sudden, you know, when when I made the decision to finally come out and speak out against Scientology, that all goes away. So for a lot of people who Our second generation Scientologists like myself who were born and raised in it, they uh, have to do battle with themselves. Because on one hand, they wanna speak out about Scientology, but on the other hand, they would lose their family, they would lose their friends, they would lose their entire way of life. And it's very very difficult for some people.
0: Right, it takes a lot of resolve and bravery, being willing to take the risk. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like you were subjected to so much where I think at some point it felt like you had no choice, but to leave for your own sanity.
1: Correct. And I'm really glad that I made that decision because it, it, takes, um, it takes years to, I mean, at least for me it did, it took me years to sort of wake up and realize that Scientology was complete BS. And I think, that, I think that's the way it is for a lot of people, especially people who, who were born and raised in any type of cult because it took you almost an entire lifetime to get into that mindset. And then it takes years for you to come out of that mindset. Mm-hmm. So it took me a while. And then once I got to that decision, I had to jump the gun, so to speak, and just kind of just go with it.
0: Right. Okay. So I'm curious also a little bit about your family history. So you're saying that, mm-hmm. you know, you were raised in a family of Scientologists. Mm-hmm. So when did your folks get involved? And what was their involvement like?
1: My parents got into Scientology in the 70s before I was born. I was born in 78, and they got in a few years before I was born. And my dad actually started this whole Scientology process. My uh, dad was an antique dealer. He dealt primarily in Chinese art and Asian art, and he met another antique dealer by the name of Jack Frost in the 1970s, and they became really good friends, and Jack kind of uh, was sort of pitching this idea of Scientology to my dad. And my dad was, was, was Jewish. He still is. And he was like, well, what's this new thing? Like, what is Scientology? And Jack Frost would tell him about all of these superpowers that you can get from Scientology. And you're not a body, you're a spirit, and you can leave your body at will. And you can uh, uh, have telepathy and read and read people's minds and, and telekinesis and move things with your mind. So he was fascinated by that. So that's how he got started in Scientology and then eventually got my mom into it. And they've been on board ever since. And they are still to this day some of the top donators uh, to Scientology. They've given millions of dollars to them over the decades. And they're considered, you know, basically Scientology royalty. They got to the, to the top of the bridge, the Scientology Bridge to Freedom. And so, yeah, so they're still, they're, they're kind of a big deal in Scientology.
0: Okay. Right. And, and I really want to highlight also the word freedom that you just mentioned that there is
1: the the bridge to total freedom. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So um, before we go back to talking about your folks, can you explain what the bridge to total, well, really not freedom at all, (laughs) but (laughs) kind of the opposite or really the opposite, but what is the bridge to total freedom?
1: So the bridge to total freedom is a a, a gradation chart that Scientologists have it, and it's and it's a bunch of steps that goes from the bottom and goes all the way to the top. And every single person is expected to start at the bottom and go up the 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 Scientological steps to to become more spiritually free. And it, at the beginning of the bridge to total freedom, it's pretty it's it's pretty vanilla stuff you know the first thing you do is something called the purification rundown that's where you go and you sit in a sauna for 5 hours a day and take heavy heavy doses of uh, vitamins including niacin and eat lots of vegetables and the purpose of that hubbard said is to rid your body of the toxins and the drugs and the alcohol that have been stored in your fat cells for you know however many years you've been taking it and then you do very very simple um Processes they're called in Scientology, which is basically just sort of a therapeutic term that he uses for for that purpose. And you do these very simple steps, and the further you go up, the more expensive it becomes, and the more bizarre it becomes. So by the time you get to the the middle part of the bridge, which is clear, and I think a lot of people are familiar with that term, uh, and uh, once you get to clear, then you start to get into the bizarre stuff, the confidential levels, and things like that. And you've already been so indoctrinated by that point. Most people have no choice but to kind of just swallow it and not question it. And that's another big thing in Scientology is you are taught that you are not allowed to question anything that Hubbard ever wrote or anything that Hubbard ever said. So by that point, you're basically stuck in it. And you're kind of screwed. So it's definitely a, uh, it's, it's, it's not a bridge to total freedom, even though that's what it's called.
0: Right. Okay. So I'm going to get into a tangent, into a tangent, but I'll come back to, to okay. what we were talking about. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um,
1: it's a lot. I mean, it, it's, yeah. it's it, there's so much to Scientology. There's so, so much. many little, yeah, it's crazy.
0: So much. Right. Mm. And so, yes, a lot of people are familiar with the term clear.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and I've certainly heard it for many, many years. Can you yes. explain what people are getting cleared of or cleared yes. from?
1: so hubbard discovered uh the reactive mind and every single person they have a mind and there's two parts to the mind on one side is the analytical mind that's the side of the mind that fixes your problems and thinks and thinks things through clearly and uh retains your memories and and everything is perfect about the analytical mind the other side of your mind is the reactive mind that supposedly stores all of your bad memories and times when you were hurt or times when you got sick and it's the part of my it's the part of the mind that you want to get rid of so everything having to do in Scientology starting from the bottom of the bridge up until you get to clear is specifically uh designed to get rid of your reactive mind and there's a whole bunch of different Scientology technology that that you can use to to do that so when you re so when your reactive mind erases or when your reactive mind just kind of goes away the label that Scientology uses to put on those people they call them clear so they're clear from their reactive mind and they no longer have their own reactive mind and then of course anyway I won't get into the into the confidential <laughs> levels yet until you're ready
0: <laughs> <laughs> Okay right and so I think the idea, and it's interesting because when you said Hubbard discovered the reactive mind, just to let people know, um, you did air quotes around discovered. Yes, uh, I did. <laughs> right. Uh, which is important. But also I think the reactive mind and that it's something that was so demonized is so telling because the reactive mind is your safety net. mm mm-hmm. it It can be yeah right it tells Mm -hmm. you something is wrong here or it tells it gives you information based Mm -hmm. on the facts based on your senses Mm -hmm. and to be robbed of it to be handicapped Mm -hmm. from being able to use it Mm -hmm. then puts you I think much more in danger and puts you in a much more vulnerable place
1: right and I think and as as an example if you put your hand on a hot stove uh, from what Hubbard is saying, the reactive mind is the thing that tells you, like, oh, this is hot. I should take my hand, and then you take your hand away. So yeah, it's so his concept of what he talks about in some of the early books in Scientology of what the reactive mind is. There's no real reason to get rid of it or try to erase it, is what he's trying to do. It just right. doesn't make any sense.
0: Right. Okay. All right. And just uh, for a moment, even though we could go into this for a really long time, mm-hmm. but about you know the kind of the secret levels where it gets intergalactic. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, yes, right.
1: <laughs>
0: so maybe you can uh, you can tell people about that.
1: Yes. So, OK, uh, very long story short, um, Hubbard created after the the level of clear, um, he created a series of uh, steps. They're called the OT levels. And these are the confidential levels. The materials are kept in. Very specific organizations that are only allowed to, to, to deliver them to people. It's like walking into Fort Knox like there's there's security doors and, and all kinds of security procedures. So the main story and the thing that um, the thing that they try to keep the most confidential is the story about what happened on earth on this planet 75 million years ago. So 75 million years ago, an evil galactic overlord by the name of Xenu came to Earth to solve an overpopulation problem. All of the planets surrounding Earth, and I think he said there were 76 or 77 planets that formed this part of the galaxy, were horribly overpopulated. So Xenu decided to gather up all of these beings, all of these alien people, bring them to Earth, stuff them inside the volcanoes on Earth, and blow up the volcanoes with H-bombs. And the purpose of doing this it's a whole long and convoluted process, but the whole purpose of doing this is that he wanted to kill off the bodies of the alien beings, but in Scientology, you're not your body, you're the spirit, and the word that Scientology uses for the soul of the spirit is called a thetan. So the bodies of all these aliens, these billions of, of, of thetans, they died, but their thetans were still there, their souls were still there, so what he did is he compacted all of them in almost like putting people in boxes. And what the result of that is, is now all of us that are now here on earth are covered by hundreds of thousands of dead phaetons or, or people who were killed by Xenu. So we're not just one person walking around in this body. We are hundreds of thousands of people. And each one has their own reactive mind. Each one has their own problems. Each one has things that, that, that are issues that we need to handle. So how do you handle it when you get to the confidential levels? You go into their auditing procedure. You use the e-meter, which is like their light detector, and you talk to them. You go through your body, and you kind of scan over your body, and you find them one by one, and you talk to them. You find out what their problems are. You find out, I can't, it sounds so insane when I'm saying it. Like, it's just so
0: crazy. I was going to ask about that, that, you know, you're now detached from it. And mm-hmm. as you're talking about it, it's, it can sound to you like you're talking a about a movie you saw and, you know, it, right. And I think I'll, my next question right. will be how it is that people within it and how it gets to that point where people within it don't necessarily question it and mm-hmm. see it, as you're saying, crazy, as it seems right now. Um, but OK, but you talk to these.
1: So you talk to these Thetans because they're attached to your body. The term that Hubbard uses for them, they're called body Thetans. So you have hundreds of thousands of body thetans that are stuck to you and stuck to your body. So you go through it and you sort of scan over your body. And with also using the help of the e-meter, you find all of these body thetans one by one and you go through them and you use Scientology procedures or Scientology uh, processing to get rid of them. And the more body thetans you get rid of, the more, up the bridge you're you're going to get and you're going to continue to go up those levels and you're going to continue to become more free and become a much more powerful spiritual being because you're getting rid of all of these personalities that are just sort of coming off you one by one and then eventually once you get to the top of the bridge to total freedom the theory is is that you're not supposed to have any more body taint stuck to you and then you'll be be able to do whatever you want you'll have a perfect memory a perfect IQ you won't get cold. You won't get sick. You don't need eyeglasses. You have perfect eyesight. You can leave your body at at, at will and you can control other people using just your mind or your thoughts. And that's the theory, but it ain't true. It's not true.
0: Right. Okay. So within the system, what will make people not necessarily, I'm sure some people do have the reaction that you're that you're talking about now mm-hmm. and the way the, what you're expressing now but mm-hmm. what would make people think all right you know i'll go with it
1: well like i said before by that time you're so indoctrinated into scientology and you're so brainwashed i guess is the right word for it because you just you you're you're trained from a very early age to never question anything that hubbard ever says and an interesting point that a lot of people who aren't Scientologists don't know, every single time you do a course in Scientology, where you study something, or you learn to do something having to do with the Scientology technology, when you learn to do the auditing, or when you learn to, to be a better student, there's a policy that Hubbard wrote, and it's at the very beginning of every single one of your courses that you do. So even though you've read it before, he makes you read it every single time, and it's called keeping Scientology working. It's a very long policy that he wrote. And in the policy, he basically says, this is the technology. Nobody else is allowed to interpret it differently than what it's written. Nobody else is allowed to add anything to it. Basically, Hubbard is saying, this is it. This is the only thing that you need to know. So if I wrote it, it's true, and you cannot question it. And he says it very, very clearly in that. So when you go up the bridge and you do all these courses, imagine reading that keeping Scientology working policy over and over and over again, and it's drilled into your head. Eventually, you're going to be, okay, well, I guess it's true that it must be true. And then to get onto the OT levels, just to get permission for you to read the confidential materials, you have to go through hoops, and you have to get cleared by the ethics officer, and they go through all of your past auditing, and they dig up all of your Deepest, darkest secrets, and anytime you ever did anything wrong, and they grill you on it. So you go through this whole process. It's part of the brainwashing process, and you become a robot, and you become your 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 uh your your critical thinking hat goes away completely, and you just learn to not question anything. So by the time you get there, you're completely fully in in indoctrinated. So and then you're and then that's it.
0: Okay, so um right before we go back to talking about your dad and your mom mm-hmm. and then coming yeah. to you there are a lot of people and i'm sure you've heard this where they say well there are a lot of quote unquote religions you know that have mm-hmm. strange beliefs and that's really not a problem i mean to, you know um i'm thinking uh you know with holidays coming up and uh yeah. it, in the on the jewish calendar right passover or,
1: yeah mm-hmm. passover
0: that mm-hmm. Um, Moses parted the Red sea well i don't know I don't know if Moses parted the Red Sea, and i don't know if it matters really right. Right. um if you're- if you are um i think more orthodox, it matters yes. and I guess for me, for others that I was raised with, mm-hmm. it could be true it might not be true it could be an allegory, it could be to send a message um to teach a lesson of some sort. And that's okay. They're sort of within the denomination that I'm in. It's okay to kind of approach it in, in mm-hmm. this other way, but mm-hmm. I know within Scientology there is one way. And it's one
1: way. It's one way or the highway. Okay. In Scientology. Yeah. And the difference is, is that you were talking about other religions, and and in Judaism, you know, Moses part of the Red Seas and 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 the ten the the ten plagues and the whole thing. The difference between Scientology and other religions is that you can learn all of the stories of most of these other religions for free. Mm-hmm. It doesn't I cost agree. anything. If yeah. you want to learn the secrets of the universe and the only way to free mankind in Scientology, you have to pay. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that story of Zena that I just told you, I need you to write me a check for $150,000, by the way. Because that's how much they charge to get to OT three.
0: Okay, let me get that. One hundred and fifty thousand. I just you need to know how many zeros to put on the check.
1: Correct. It's expensive to learn the secrets of the universe. You
0: know. Oh right, but you're right. I mean, uh, you can just hear someone tell the story, or you can, you know, pick up uh, a Bible and read it yourself, and yeah. It's
1: free. You can go into any any. If you're Jewish, you can go into any synagogue and read the Torah. If you're Catholic or Christian, you can go into any church and read the Bible and talk to a priest and have. Confessionals for free. Scientology charges for everything, including confessionals. And it's really expensive. You know, there are no poor Scientologists. There, there can't be.
0: That's so interesting. Although you can be when you're leaving. Uh, right? The- That's
1: also true. But also there's a lot of Scientologists that had money, yeah. But they gave it all to Scientology. And so now they're driving crappy cars and they don't and they can't and, and they can't afford to pay their regular bills mm-hmm. because most of their income is going to Scientology. They just they Pounce on you when you walk into a church of Scientology. They try to like milk you for everything you have. It's horrible.
0: Yes. So to go back to yes. this conversation with Jack Frost, I love that name. Um, Um, and that he promised your dad, uh, all these superhuman powers, telekinesis, et cetera. And you're also saying that, you know, if you are someone who follows things as you should in Scientology, then you won't get sick and you won't wear glasses. I'm curious, does your dad wear glasses?
1: My dad wears glasses and he has a lot of medical problems. He just had a massive heart attack, uh, four years ago.
0: So how does he explain that? Or does he not?
1: Well, uh the, the only way that Scientologists can explain that is because Hubbard created a certain type of technology um, many years after he first started Scientology. I think he, I, I think he created this whole concept in the in the late '60s of a person who is PTS, that's an acronym it stands for Potential Trouble Source." So all he said this he said, all sickness, all accidents, and anything bad that happens to you is caused because you are a Potential trouble source or PTS. How do you handle a person that's PTS? They must be connected to someone who's a suppressive person. A suppressive person in Scientology, that definition is someone who is evil, someone who has evil intentions, and mo- more specifically, someone who attacks Scientology or speaks out against Scientology or says negative and bad things about Scientology. Because Scientology is the only thing in the world that's going to help humanity and make everybody clear and save the world. So, of course, if you attack Scientology, you must be a suppressive person. So, uh, my dad had a heart attack about four and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. He um, was without – because he, he basically died, and he was without oxygen for about 13 minutes. Oh, wow. And okay. Yeah, and because of that, he suffered um, an anoxic brain injury, which he has brain damage now. So he's in a wheelchair, he can barely walk. His heart is much better now because they fixed it, but the brain damage is still there and he has a whole host of medical problems.
0: Oh, I'm sorry to hear My
1: that. Yeah, and it's unfortunate because this was when I was still talking to them and my mother, even though she never confirmed it with me, I can pretty much guarantee you that she thinks that I'm the suppressive person and my dad is PTS because of me. So I'm the reason why he got the heart attack. I'm the reason why he got brain damage. So it's a, it's a, mm-hmm. and, and, and when you're in Scientology, because I'm now a suppressive person, they can't be connected to me in any way. They're not, they, so, because otherwise they would be labeled a PTS or a potential trouble source. That's, that's one of the many ways, or one of the most common ways that Scientology breaks up families.
0: Right. And so how long has it been since you've talked to your family or they've talked to you?
1: I, I, I haven't talked to them in two, almost two and a half years now. Oh yeah.
0: wow. Okay. Yeah.
1: Okay. But you know what though? I still think that I made the I I think I made the right decision because for me to be stuck, you know, in that in that bubble and me not being able to say anything and not talk about my personal history in Scientology, which may be different from other people, uh but at the same time it's like I have to I have to live my own truth. You know, no matter what no matter what your family members want you to do, no matter what your family members want you to believe, you kind of have to you kind of have to follow your own path in that way.
0: Right, I think that's a really important thing that you have to make this decision mm-hmm. um, where there is a great risk involved in order yes. for you to be able to mm-hmm. have your freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, and the people I know who are still in contact, who, who are really mentally out, but yeah. still in, they haven't let people know how they really feel and they haven't let their families know because they're really mm-hmm. worried about being disconnected mm-hmm. from their families. Mm-hmm. There is a part of them that feels like they're succumbing to something, like they're playing along with a game that they never wanted to play with rules that they think are cruel, yes. and and they feel backed into a corner, and they're kind of emotionally crushed by it and not feeling proud of themselves yet that mm-hmm. they were able to kind of take steps to, towards their own freedom. So I think people people suffer really in both directions, and, and it is... Um, it's a system that was not set up by you or your family but you're all affected by it in this horrible way
1: it's a it's a it's a horrible setup and i i i feel bad for them cuz i was in that exact same position i was what they call under the radar so you're still on the surface you're behaving and being a good little scientologist but really you're not and i was under the radar for almost 10 years so like 2000 2007 or 2008 is when I finally decided like, you know, Scientology, that's it. I'm done with it. But I'm going to still be, you know, I'm not going to say anything bad about it publicly. I'm not going to go on a podcast and talk about Xenu. Um,
0: (laughs) Right. No, but, but I get. Mm -hmm.
1: and, and, and I still, I still talk to people. I get emails and phone calls from lots of people over the last year or two who are still under the radar, people who are still stuck in that. In that vicious cycle, who were like, if I speak out against Scientology, I lose my job, I lose my family, my kids will probably disconnect from me, or my or my girlfriend or my wife might might disconnect from me. They'll have to start their lives all over again. And it's and it's I feel for them. It's really sad. And the thing that I mo- I tell people, it's like you gotta you gotta do it on your own time. It's almost like coming out of the closet is being gay. It's like you can't force someone out of the closet. You have to be the one to open the door and step
0: out. Right. Okay. All right. So here you are born into this family that mm-hmm. are, you know, not only card-carrying yeah. members but really devoted and very generous towards mm-hmm. keeping it going. Yes. Um, and real believers. And so tell me then a little bit about your experiences that would be good for the listeners to know about that is part of the reason that I could see you as as a survivor.
1: Yes. Yes. Well, I have lots of stories. (laughs) I have lots and lots and lots of stories. Um, For me growing up in Scientology, the the most difficult part about it for me was, is that I was, I, I am, I am a gay man. So growing up in Scientology, gay in a homophobic religion or cult is, is a little, it was, it was terrifying to be honest with you. I feel like a lot of people that get into Scientology are trying to fix something. Some person might have, you know, a problem with headaches or sometimes a person might have a problem with not being able to sleep very well, or sometimes a person might have epilepsy or have some sort of medical condition and then when you start Scientology, you think, think that okay, when I start doing Scientology, it's going to fix whatever the problem is. It's going to fix my headaches, it's going to fix the this. I always thought that it was going to fix my homosexuality. So as you go up the bridge, you think, all right, this is the level this is the one where I'm going to be cured of my blah blah whatever the ailment is and then it doesn't happen it's like okay it's going to happen on the next level so for me going through the lower part of the bridge was I was always focused on that I don't I don't want to be gay because Hubbard says in very early Scientology books that it's a aberration is what he calls it you know which is basically like saying like it's it's homosexuality is a mental illness, is essentially what he's saying. So I was like, well, there's some there, there must be something wrong with me, but you know what? Scientology can fix it. And then I get to clear, and it's still not quite fixed yet. And then I start doing the confidential levels and going higher and doing the OT levels, and it's still not quite fixed yet. But whatever the Scientology technology that you're applying to yourself at the time, you focus that ailment or focus that illness or that thing that you want to be cured. So for me, it was a constant mental battle in my own head of like I want to keep doing Scientology and I want to keep getting better and curing myself but at the same time it's like I want to explore my sexuality and I want to you know start doing and talking and doing things on that side of it so that was very hard for me um and I have <laughs> So many stories about, I mean, one story in particular is that when I was working for Scientology, I was actually in the C organization for almost four years. That's the thing where you work for Scientology 24 seven, and they wear those, uh, those naval style uniforms and make you sign a billion year contract when you join, blah, blah, blah. And you cannot be gay in Scientology, especially not in the C organization. So they found out that I had a crush and was having sort of like an emotional relationship with another male seer member at the time, they found out about it and they did not like it. They uh, uh, locked me in a room on the seventh floor of the big blue buildings, the one that's on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. Uh, They locked me in a windowless room with a security guard watching me 24 seven and the security guard would take his bed and put it up against the door in the middle, like when he slept so that if I tried to escape in the middle of the night, I would have to climb over him and he would obviously wake up the only time I was allowed out of that room was to be escorted across the street to the actual organization to be given interrogations for hours upon hours. And that lasted for about two months. And they, when they do interrogations um, sometimes they have a pre-made set of questions to ask you, but in a lot of cases, what they like to do is they like to tailor the questions around your situation. And I was eighteen or nineteen at the time, and they were asking me some pretty, pretty gnarly, pretty embarrassing and invasive,
0: uh, invasive uh, yeah. questions like, yeah. like,
1: have you ever had anal sex? Have you ever had oral sex? Have you ever touched a penis? Have you ever? De-? And anyway, so it like that 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 went on for about eight hours a day for two months straight until they finally decided that they were done with me.
0: Eight and hours a kept- day. Eight, hours, Eight, a hours. Eight hours a day for two months straight. Oh my goodness! Okay, straight,
1: seven okay. days a week, nothing else. And then, so finally, once they hit once I convinced them that I had confessed all of my crimes, they kicked me out of the org and say, uh, uh, "Faggots are not allowed in the org. Uh, you're being kicked out. Here's your uh, forty thousand dollar bill for all the courses that you took while you're in the org. Organization. Have a nice day." And then I went home.
0: Oh, you got a bill. So yeah, that, I got a bill. Yeah. So okay, when you're so in the to C- just org, add insult to injury. Yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah. So anyway, so when you're in the Sea Org, all of your Scientology courses and all of your auditing you get for free. But what they don't tell you is is that if for every course that that, that you do and every auditing process that you do, you get charged the full rate for it, and they keep it in a little file that you don't really know about. And then if you ever do leave the Sea Org. Like, oh, well, you took all these courses for free, or you got all this auditing for free. You need to give us that money back now. So, whenever someone leaves the Sea Org or gets kicked out of the Sea Org, in my case, they give you what they call the Freeloader Bill. And mine was $40,000. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, it's not, it, was, it, was, it was not a fun time in my life. No.
0: no. Yeah, I've heard about Freeloader debt, right? So that's Freeloader
1: debt, yes. Yeah, that's
0: this. Yeah this situation where, yeah, people do feel that they have to then pay up. and well, so, if you want
1: to stay within the ranks of Scientology, and if you want to keep your family, you have to. You have to.
0: Incredible. Incredible. And that's crazy. And so I'm wondering what else. I mean, that that story is horrifying. Mm. You were in this windowless room and yes. only let out to be interrogated. Interrogated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my god! I know.
1: I know. I know. Okay. So...
0: And so I wonder, are there other... I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of other stories, but are there others that kind of highlight what life was like for you?
1: Yes. So um, one of the things that I always like to talk about, especially when I go back into my earlier years when I was in Scientology is when I was getting trained to become an auditor. And I started at a very young age. I started my auditor training when I was 13, which is very unusual um, because most times kids at that age, they don't start their Scientology training. So I was sort of like the prodigy of Scientology at that, at, at that time, at least in my organization. I did most of my training at the Celebrity Center, which is that building that they still have, it's on Franklin. So when you are getting auditing uh, as a patient, you're supposed to confess all of your deepest, darkest secrets. And when I was a kid, when I was receiving the auditing, As a teenager, a lot of, um, I wasn't having sex yet, if we can get a little graphic for a second. Mm -hmm. I wasn't having sex yet, but, you know, as a teenager, you masturbate. So when you think about, and it took me years to realize this, but when you think about it, when I was 13, 14, or 15 years old, I would have adults asking me about my masturbatory habits, getting down to very specific details. Because in Scientology, when Hubbard said, if someone has a transgression or something wrong that they did, you need to get every single detail. What time did it happen? Where did it take place? Who was involved with it? What exactly was the situation? So like, if I was talking about, I mean, when I was 13 or 14 years old, the, the auditor would ask me, you know, well, did you masturbate? And I would say, yes. He's asked me all these questions. Like, how did you do it? what hand did you use did you look at pornography were you thinking about anything did you do anything else so it was i mean it's borderline sexual harassment especially to children too like and this and this goes on children are being audited to this day and they're having to confess their crimes whatever they may be it doesn't necessarily have to be masturbation or sexual things but it could be it could be a lot of those things cuz teenagers experiment with that stuff and you know that's what we did when we were teenagers and then on the flip side of that when i was the auditor when i was 13 or 14 years old i was the one asking the questions but i was asking the questions of adults so these adults are telling me their most deepest darkest sexual secrets and they were pretty graphic from what i remember and there was one particular person that i was giving auditing to um he I asked him, I was like, is there something that you've done that you don't want me to find out about? Which is a standard Scientology question in auditing. And he proceeded to tell me a story about how he was molesting his younger cousin. He was a 30 or 40 year old man and he was sexually abusing his, I don't know how old she was. She must've been under 10 years old at the time. So my job as an auditor at that time was to ask very specific questions. What did you do? How did you touch her? Um uh what, what was her reaction to it? When did that happen? and all these things and you write all these things down and then that was it. i wasn't allowed to report him to authorities i wasn't allowed to do anything like that because in Scientology, these are supposed to be priest penitent confidential information it's like you're going into a confessional. But as a thirteen year old or fourteen year old when I was hearing these things of an adult man molesting a young family member, it was just. It was it was pretty horrendous. And then, as I continue my training, you learn to kind of just shut that stuff off. And 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 now that I'm out of Scientology, this is sort of part of my healing process. Is I need to talk about these things. I don't want to talk about the dangers of children in Scientology, especially children who are receiving auditing or who are giving auditing, Mm. because it's a it's a it's a really, it's a it's a it's a it's a criminal thing. It's a criminal thing, and it still happens to this day.
0: It's uh, as you describe it, so traumatizing, um, very, and very to very traumatizing. to have to expose your secrets mm-hmm. uh, to an adult when you're young already yeah. is, you know, oh. tremendously awful. And that happens in other groups too. I haven't I'm heard sure. of the reverse in other groups where children are getting the information from adults, but it mm. it it just Highlights for me. So many of the stories I've heard about how The developmental needs of children Mm -hmm. are not adhered to Within groups like this that there really isn't a sensitivity or understanding about What it does to a child to be exposed to certain information or certain experiences before They're emotionally ready for them Um, And so it sounds like age kind of didn't matter
1: no, because in Scientology, again, going back to their basic belief is that everybody is a spiritual being. Everybody is uh, a thetan. You've lived hundreds, and thou- hundreds of thousands of lifetimes for billions and billions of years. Your body is not your actual age, and they separate the two. So you have your body, and you yourself are the thetan, the soul. So they don't look at children, and I think there's a a policy that Hubbard wrote that said children are just adults in smaller bodies. Mm. So when you look at it like that, there's no real protection for children in Scientology because children, when I was in the Sea Org, I joined when I was like 17 or 18, so I wasn't a very young child, but like when I was in the Sea Organization, there were Sea Org members that were 11 or 12 years old who were subjected to all of the rules of the Sea Org including the manual labor that you have to do the crazy schedule working from seven in the morning until midnight. If you're lucky, if you're lucky, you won't have to pull an all nighter. Um, and it was, it was, it was really hard to see a lot of these young Sea Org members that were struggling. And one story in particular, when I was uh, doing my training at the, at the, at the big blue building here in Los Angeles, a lot of the children that were children of Sea Org members they had them up at a ranch. I don't remember exactly where it is. I think it's in central California somewhere. Uh, But they keep the kids separated from the parents because the parents who are the C organization members, they have to do their job and they can't have the kids distracting them of course. So they send the kids up to the ranch and they get to visit them once a week or once every two weeks or whatever it is. When the kids at the ranch are old enough. And in this case they were 12 years old and 13 years old. They Automatically put them in the C-Org. All right, you guys, that's it. You're 12 years old or 13 years old. It's time for you to get to work. It's time for you to join the C-Organization and just go for it. They had no formal education. They never really experienced a normal school. They were raised by parents of the C-Organization, so they never really experienced the outside world. I can remember countless times, like the 12-year-olds and the 13-year-olds, having to instruct them on how to use deodorant or how to shave, especially I mean the males here, the male kids, because they didn't know how. Their parents were never there. They didn't they they were not raised in an environment where they had somebody to teach them like the basic hygiene of life, you know, as they're progressing through puberty. And it's 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 not set up for children, yet children are still being subjected to this stuff in Scientology, which is which is horrible.
0: One more thing before you go. One of the things that Joey mentioned was about growing up in such a controlled environment and not really being able to have the kind of childhood that other kids get to have when they are not in those same kinds of controlled environments. And also being able to have a sense of self-acceptance. That was something that was kept from him and also communal acceptance. There are a lot of people who have grown up in very tight-knit families that were very rigid, punitive, and also were raised in cultic groups where they fear that they didn't get a chance to go through the quote-unquote normal social and emotional stages. So I wanted to be able to talk about what they are basically at different ages. This is an oversimplification, and I promise that it won't be as dry (laughs) as it might be sounding. When we are uh, about age three to four, we get to start to show a range of emotions and verbalize a wider range of emotions. But again, within controlled environments, and also in environments where you really don't get to be a kid who has feelings, you are allowed a very small range of emotions, and usually just positive ones. You're told how you're supposed to feel about things. And this begins, unfortunately, a disengagement from your inner world. There's a reason that there are a lot of preschools that will have a feelings chart. That when kids come in, kindergartens sometimes have this too, elementary schools. When kids come in, they can talk about how they feel. They can point to an emotion on the chart, a face that is portraying a certain emotion, and learn the words to describe how they're feeling. Sometimes when you have little kids point to something on a chart and they say they're feeling betrayed or they're feeling mischievous or they're feeling irritated or suspicious, they might not know what those feelings mean, but, and it might not be actually what they're feeling, but they're learning the words of emotions. And I think also it's reminding me that kids get to add their own words because if it's not on the list, that should be okay, too. I remember a girl in a preschool that I was helping out in one summer who said uh, almost every day that she was feeling sparkly. I don't know if that's an emotion, but it was her emotion. It wasn't on the chart, and it didn't matter. Something else that happens between age three and four is that kids are usually spontaneously kind and caring and show empathy. So if a friend falls and hurts themselves, Uh, Or if their parent gets injured, something happens where they find an injured bird, they will care to a certain degree. They might not know what to do, but they will show a reaction to it. Unless they are raised in a group that tells them that if something bad happens to you or happens to anything, they've brought it on themselves and you don't have to feel bad for them. That constricts your ability to naturally show that kind of caring and have that kind of empathy. The other thing is that within this age group, people start to develop some imagination. And this is when kids start to dress up and they'll go to school sometimes as their favorite superhero if they're allowed to. And it reminds me of a story of when I brought my son who was... um, in preschool at the time, over to a friend's house to play with him for the day, and I was going to drop him off there and go to work. And the mom opens up the door, and her son comes running up to the door, and over his shorts and t-shirt, he is wearing a long princess dress and one of these sort of cone-shaped princess hats with a long ribbon coming down. And he says to my son, oh, I have to kiss so many frogs to see which one is my prince. Let me kiss you to see if you are my prince. All righty, well, uh, I'm fine with this, but we've never been greeted at the door this way, so we weren't quite sure either one of us how to respond. So we did this sort of side-talking, ventriloquist talking where... um my son said to me, what should I do? And I said, it's up to you. And he said, I don't like to be kissed on the face. And that was true. He didn't like to be kissed on the face by anybody. So I said, really, it's your decision. So he put out his hand. And this boy kissed the top of his hand. And then put both of his hands on his heart and fell into this sort of crumpled mess of shorts and sneakers and princess dress and hat and said, oh, you are my prince. You are my prince. And then there was this long silence because we weren't quite sure if the scene was over. And the boy stood up, ripped off his dress, which was fastened by Velcro, took off his hat and then turned to my son and said, hey, let's go play with my toy army Jeeps in the dirt outside. And they went running outside to play with army Jeeps. And the mom said, and I'll make lunch. And I said, and I'll be back after work. And I left. And I'm telling you this story, not because it made such an impact, but because it didn't. And that was so interesting because this boy was just being this boy. And I don't know what that means about him, I don't know if he knows or he knew he was four, but it was a time for him within his family unit to be able to explore and to be able to be accepted and feel safe. And what I think my son got from it was kind of what matters and what doesn't, at least within our family system, that what mattered was not the kiss on the hand or the princess dress, but more You know, it would have left an impression that day, at least, if this boy had pushed him into the dirt rather than playing with trucks in the dirt, that how people treated each other was what mattered more. Within the group that Joey was raised in, that would have never been allowed. And just stating that you had those feelings or stating that you were different in any way that was prescribed was going to be something that was going to put you on the hot seat. And then, moving on to age five to six, kids enjoy playing with other kids, and they start to play with other kids, and they also test boundaries, but they're still eager to please. Testing boundaries, also, within certain environments, never allowed, and highly punishable. Then, around age seven and eight, kids will try to express their feelings with words, but may resort to aggression or crying or retreating when upset and they're more aware of other people's perceptions of them and judgment. And this reminds me of a time that I was a school counselor and uh, a teacher brought a second grader in to see me and she was sobbing. Not the teacher, the second grader. And she couldn't get her words out. It was one of those like <gasps> she couldn't breathe and I I said, "What's wrong?" and so she tried to make her way through the sentence and she said, "Aaron, Aaron called me. Aaron called. I said, Aaron called you? Yeah, but no. So I said, You're not finished? No. So she said, Aaron called me a human. And I said, Oh, do you know what that means? No. So I said, It means you're a person. And she stopped crying and she said, Oh, that's it? (laughs) And I said, Yeah. That's it. And she left. So sometimes when you have a chance to talk about your feelings and talk it through and not have to hide them, you get the answers you need about if you need to be upset about something or if you don't. And then, mm, age 9 to 10 approximately, you start narrowing your peer groups. You have fewer close friends with whom you share secrets and jokes. But again, in some groups, it's never safe to share your secrets with anyone. It's not safe to have a secret. And then also during this phase, you start developing your own identity, but that's a threat within certain groups. Independent thinking, being self-defining, having self-concept, developing your own likes and dislikes and values. There isn't room for that in controlled families and controlled environments. Between age 11 to 15, You get a little more introspective, a little more moody, you need a little more privacy, also not something afforded people within controlled environments. And you try to find where you fit in and you explore more social roles. And then around 16 to 18, you are supposed to be able to develop more independence. Again, that's not an option for some people in some environments. And... You're supposed to be able to discover your own strengths and weaknesses, but that gets compromised if those strengths and weaknesses are defined by the group or by your family. And you should also be able to show pride in your success. I know people who were raised in Bible-based cultic groups where they say that they couldn't show pride because pride was a sin. And... Also, that within certain families and certain groups, if there's the expectation of perfection, what you're doing is never good enough. And so you don't develop that confidence. And then, of course, around that age, people are interested in dating and exploring their sexuality and also their gender identity. But they know that in certain environments, because they've seen how other people have been treated when they were open and honest about that, that. They know to keep it hidden and they can start to believe that it's shameful. And they can also be afraid all the time that they have a very dangerous secret. So people ask me if it's ever too late to make up for some of these deficits. And when kids aren't given the chance to be kids, and that's sort of the way it was often in the past. But now, Many people feel, who were raised in overly punitive or rigid households or cultic groups, that they missed out on being kids, and they missed out on these developmental stages. They missed out on just being silly and doing things for no reason, having downtime, safely making mistakes, even spilling something, and it's okay. And also being able to express the range of emotions that they might not even understand, but they're exploring and they feel safe to express. So yeah, while there may be some lags and gaps, just to be honest, it's not too late to start making up some of the difference, and to have some fun, and to connect with people who let you freely be you, and to learn to do something you didn't get to do because it was seen as frivolous or a waste of time when you were young, and to do things for no reason, just for fun. And to remember that being a secure adult doesn't mean you've left all your more childlike wishes and hurts and interests and needs behind. It often just means you've found ways to recognize them, hold on to the ones you want to hold on to, care for them, or explore them, and have them coexist in your adult lives. So the next time you're getting dressed for work or school, and you check yourself in your reflection to make sure you look professional, you look put together, and then you end up making a funny face to yourself in the mirror just for the hell of it, and just because it makes you laugh, don't worry. You're still an adult, but one who can honor the child inside of you. Talk to you next week. Indoctrination is available for download on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and more. Please support indoctrination at patreon.com indoctrination. Subscribers receive bonus episodes, interviews, and other cool goodies. Send us an email at indoctrinationshow@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.